my name's Scarlett Lewis, and I'm the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. I'd like to welcome you to the Choose Love Podcast, a place where we can come together in love and discuss how we can all choose this in our daily lives to take what we've learned and use it to help make a safer, more peaceful, and loving world. Today, I'm speaking with TJ Stevens, author of Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. This is his personal testimony, and I look forward to hearing what we've learned from his experience, what progress we've made with school shootings since this occurred in 1982, and what we still need to do moving forward. Thank you so much for being with us, TJ. Hey, thank you for having me, Scarlett. You were originally reluctant to share your story. And uh, what changed your mind and why did you write this book? Wow. Um, first of all, I just want to say that I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you did. <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, wow. Uh, I had to put it down a few times. Uh, it really, yeah. like like the, the uh, person read in your book, you said that someone said they felt the book. They didn't read the book. And that's pretty much what I did. I felt yeah. it. Yeah. to see the, the other perspective and the pain that's upon these parents and um, the faith of the families. Uh, I have to say in my situation, uh, my family and friends were also praying in my situation, but uh, I didn't have a, a hands-on, you know, seeing in your book, a hands-on seeing exactly what was taking place and the, the emotions you felt through that process. So I have to say your, your book really blew me away. So thank you for writing it. Well, you know but what? Yeah. I, I want to say the same thing about your book. Your book blew me away. Um, I see it a little differently, I think, than maybe some do. And I know this having gone through the experience um, with Sandy Hook right away there was this polarization of guns versus no guns. And I saw everyone blaming Adam Lanza, who was our school shooter, former student of Sandy Hook Elementary School, whose mother had taught at the school. And then, uh, and then his mom who gave him the gun. And of course, uh, this, the Sandy Hook school shooting resulted in 26, 27, murders, 28, 28 murders, <laughs> including Adam and his mom. Um, and I've always talked about that 28. And, uh, and of course, yours did not yours resulted in no deaths, and no physical injuries. Um, but for me, after my experience, I thought it's just too easy to put all of the blame on Adam and his mom. It's too easy. And, and then when we do that, it's almost like, okay, good guy, bad guy. I'm obviously the good guy. That's obviously the bad guy and I'm done with it. And, and for me, I thought it's just too easy because if they're 100% responsible, obviously they are for their actions, for the thoughts that led up to that they are responsible for what happened, but we also have to take 
a part of the responsibility for what's going wrong or it's going to continue to happen. I thought in my head, wait a minute, this has happened before. And, uh, and I was, I was certainly hoping that it would never happen again, that we would learn so many lessons from, from what happened in Sandy Hook, that we would take them and we would use them moving forward so that that never happens again. We know every school shooting is 100% preventable. And, uh, and do you agree with me when I say that TJ? Mm -hmm. You do, you do. And not many people say that, but I know that with with my research and what I've experienced and what I've seen. And I just think that uh, unless we take some amount of responsibility in what's happening to our kids (laughs) and address the cause of the school shooting, uh, of school shootings, we're never gonna get to a solution. And by the way, just me being on this podcast um, your incident happened in 1982. It's 2021. And I bet it's really hard for you to see that this is not a new normal. This is our normal in our world. Now we have regular school shootings. We expect them to happen. It's not, it's not even that big a deal in the media when they do. And how, how does that feel for you? Uh, for me, it's not normal. Uh, evil uh, should not be a normalcy we should settle with. Uh, the battle is obviously, in, in, in my situation, uh, a spiritual one. And um, yeah, you're right about the whole blame situation. Let me just express something here. A child, I mean, I'm 57 years old now. When I did this, I just turned 18. So I'm living a lot of years that I don't deserve. So I'm grateful for every breath I take. But um, looking back on it through my entire life, I understand there's an accountability. But for a child of that age to have access to a weapon inside a home. So so again, about accountability, if we have a weapon in our home, they need to be locked up. They need to be secure. They need to be in a place where people other than the licensed user should have access to these weapons. Um, as far as a semi-automatic or my situation was a rifle. Uh, had I had uh, the weapon Mr. Lanza had, um, it could have turned out totally differently. So, you know, I'm, uh, I believe people have rights to their guns, but at the same time, there are weapons that we train military to use on a regular basis, but yet a child gets a hold of one of these weapons weapons uh all they're thinking in their mind is video games movies you know the culture around them and they don't even understand the um the permanency of what they're doing to someone else um all they they see is pain in my situation when i went into the school uh scarlet i was already dead and what i mean by that is my heart was beating. I was breathing air, but I was dead as a, as a human being. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? The life did not exist anymore. So that, that coward mentality of, well, if I'm dead, everything around me is dead. Um, that uh, 
Um, in some situations, it's bullying. Some situations, it's there's all these different red flags that takes place. In my situation, it was abuse. Um, but then we look back on it. Well, can we blame abuse? A lot of people get abused and don't do something like that. That's exactly the truth. But um, I chose the path of evil. So evil exists and welcomes you to it. People find comfort in evil. It's very temporal, but it's comfort. It's a way out of their cowardice thought. Um, in my situation, I can't speak for Adam Lanza, but in my situation, I guarantee you for him too, we needed some tough love. You know what I'm saying? We needed somebody to put us in our place and set us down and straighten us out. You know, a kind of a boot camp, if you will, and grow up, man up, whatever you need to do. And <clears throat> so even in that, in my situation, um, the culture is totally different than it is now. Uh, now it's everything has a right to do this, a right to do that. But, you know, what we call rights, God calls sin, you know? So I believe, yes, that we should reach out to those people who are hurting. And my, my view is put 30 minutes of Bible study back in our school. In, 19, in 1962, when we took Bibles out of schools, was the biggest mistake. Our government, our culture, that we ever made. So we, we ran from God. Now we left darkness in the schools and with what, what's happening now, we're expecting good to come from it. So I would That's say- That's a good point. Yeah. When, you look at, when you look at the statistics of what was going on in schools in 1982 and you compare them to what's going on in our schools in 2021, there is a huge difference. Um, TJ, could you share your story with us? Um, what happened? Sure. Um, in 1982, um, I was going to take my own life, and it resulted into a conversation with an entity within me, and I ended up going into the school uh, the very next morning uh, and with the intent to harm others. And within the first 15 minutes, I uh, was smashing out windows, uh, not being on drugs, but didn't, I didn't feel any pain. I was on rage. And it was kind of like this implosion took place. Be careful of the quiet kids. Be careful of the red flags that's within your, your school system um, uh, of children who are not speaking. The was ones that, that do speak. Oh, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's a cultivating period of, of pain. And uh, in suicide, you always try to convince yourself, commit yourself. You start selling your furniture. You give away everything you have. You're telling yourself this is going to happen on this date and that date. Um, to humanly concept, to be able to take your own life which is a coward's way out because um, that's what I chose, the coward's way out. Um, but I didn't know who, who God was. I knew of him through family members and things like that, but I didn't know who he was. I didn't have that connection, that relationship with hope. 
And so as I went into the school, started shooting down the hallway, but I always shot above their heads. And it was a bolt action rifle. Um, and so I had pockets full of ammunition. And uh, does that mean it was single shot? It's you had to reload shot. after every shot? No, no, it hit, I think it was uh, six or nine bullets okay. per chamber that you could load it with. So 29 to 11 bolt action. And, uh, and then I went into this, you know, started going to doors, kicking in doors that was unlocked and went into the office and, and there was uh, faculty members in there. And they thought it was part of a play that was happening at the school called Oklahoma. And uh, once I had fired the gun several times in the office, obviously they realized it was not a play, it was real. And then for the next 21 hours, we had a hostage situation. Uh, negotiators were involved, SWAT team. Um, back then you didn't have a lot of high school shootings. So it was kind of a, um, a media frenzy. And I can tell you from experience, that the media is not the solution, the medium is part of the problem. The media uh, gives the shooter a power or control feeling of look at me, look what I, you know, that expression of pain. Now the whole world knows my pain. You know what I mean? So it's like this infection, if you will. But obviously, you know, they have their own agendas when they push a story. Uh, but at the same time, families want to know the truth the only way to get the truth is go straight to the source and that is to go to the school like you did and then it was even hard to get the truth but um so at the end of the 21 hours uh this very next day this was november 10th 1982 and november 11th uh i did uh just like the kids in columbine got down on my knees and put the rifle on the ground and put the barrel in my mouth in front of the hostages. And uh, I put my thumb on the trigger. Now, mind you, just almost 36 hours earlier, that was the same position I was in in my bedroom. So this uh, battle I'm having with this legion of voices within my head telling me we had a deal, we had a deal. And everyone in that room was in danger. And I said, I'll just kill myself and you can't make me do this. Obviously, the people in the room are looking at a lunatic and that's what I was. Um, but they didn't know the spiritual battle that I was dealing with, um, that I had chosen, let's say, the accountability part. I ain't blaming on, on, on Satan. I'm blaming on me for choosing Satan, mm -hmm. cho choosing that path. And, uh, but anyway, so right at the point of putting pressure with my thumb on the trigger, a lady, one of the um, faculty members fell to her face, started crying and screaming and put her hands over her face like this. So please don't do this. You don't, you know, you haven't hurt anybody other than myself, you know, blood was everywhere all over the room, but it was my blood. And she goes, you haven't hurt, any, hurt anybody. You don't have to do this. Please don't do this. But as she was doing it, the gun's in my mouth and I'm 
tears were rolling down my eyes and the peripheral vision of something was blinding me on my peripheral vision. And I pulled the gun out, jerked over, and as she was swaying, a gold cross was swaying from her neck. And it just infuriated me. Now, to this day, she probably doesn't know, but she was looking at me like, why you look at me like that? And I told her to get out. Two words, get out. No call the negotiator and, and, and say, hey, somebody's coming. No, I said, get out with a voice that was not mine. It was just this evil, whatever was in me was just get out. I wanted that cross away from me because it confronted what was within me. She got up, ran out. And at that point, I was having a, a road to Damascus moment. I mean, I felt like someone poured a whole bucket of holy water on top of me and I was just burning in pain and all the, the voices, all the anger, all the, just everything, the rage, everything was gone in an instant. And it was like uh, uh, being in a boat that had 200 foot waves and all of a sudden it's a golden pond. And then it's like, where am I? What am I doing here? Who are you? What are these people? Why, why do I have a gun in my hand? You know what I mean? That, that what, what the world would call schizophrenia. Uh, something spiritual had just transformed uh, me through that cross. And as soon as that happened, there was a hand that reached out to me. And here we go again with the hands and voices. Well, let me tell you something. It's real. And I thank God for this hand every day. It, did, it was not pierced, but it was a white robe and a hand reaching for me. That's all I could see. It did not grab me. It waited for me to reach for it. I reached up and touched this hand. It was over. It, it was like I became human again. You know what I mean? It was like uh, the whole side of me that walked in that school no longer existed. You know what I mean? So it was almost like even in my sin, even in my darkest moment, even, even having a gun against children and faculty, God was still with me. God, well, let's call it a higher power because I didn't know it was God at the, at the time. I would call it a higher power was still walking with me through my darkness because he loved me as much as he loved those victims. But he saw something in me that didn't have to do that. So after that, for the next seven hours, uh, we negotiated. I was letting them go for pizza and ice cream. Uh, every hour would be two hostages per hour. And at the end of it, got down and um, uh, the last teacher would not leave. And her name was Joan. She would not leave. She said, I know what you're doing. And I looked at her and I said, I deserve death. You do not. Please raise your hands up and walk out. They had a firing squad lined up. The SWAT team did. She said, I'm not leaving without you. Well, that time I'd lost so much blood. She could have overtook me with no problem. So basically, I'm just leaning on her body with the gun on the left side. We walk out. And the police said, throw the weapon out. And consciously understood if I threw it, it could misfire. So I pointed away from the police, threw it across the hallway. And it did not misfire. And we got out to the middle of the 
hallway and I just, I didn't want them killing this lady. And again, it doesn't make me a hero. It just made me human at the time to understand I'm waiting for my, for my sentence for what I've done. I deserve this. The coward, you know, suicide by cop, that mentality. And so I pushed her away from me and dove for the gun. I knew they had to kill me then. And my hand, my fingers were about maybe two inches from the weapon and my head was facing away from the, the firing squad. And I just whispered, whispered to myself, forgive me. At that moment, that same hand came back and it reached for the hand that was closest to the gun gently. And my hand went back around my back and the police came and did what they had to do. Now people, some people say, oh great, we got hands, we got voices, we've got this, we've got that. Well, let me tell you something. When you get to the point of death, I don't care if you're an atheist, if you get to the point of death, you're crying out to God. And let me tell you something, God loves you even up to death and even loves you after death. He doesn't send us to hell, we send ourselves there. So the police took me to the interrogation room and told me, who was working with you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, there's no way you would have known when we had snipers for the last two days on you. Uh, every time we had the green light on, you were nowhere to be found. But when we had the red light, uh, uh, red light on, meaning you can't shoot until you get ordered from the, the higher ups, you would show your face through the window, down the hall, or something like that. They would have a clean shot. You had to know or have some kind of communication with the police. And I just dropped my head on the table and I said, I'm speaking to something. I have no clue. It's, you know, higher power or whatever it might be. I said, why did you let me live? Why? Because I, I, I even told my lawyer I wanted the death sentence. He said, well, you didn't kill nobody. You didn't hurt nobody. We can't give you the death sentence, but you are facing 144 years. And I said, well, it's not good enough. It was kind of like that cruise mentality. Remember when he said, give me execution and or whatever when he first got in there and then the lawyers convinced him to go with the life sentence and so he still doesn't care about his life at this point he wants to be dead mm -hmm. and that's how i was um back to the unworthy part um and i just save the taxpayer money and whatnot just just take just just have me executed and, and don't wait 20 years to do it and if you don't do it i'll just do it myself you know um it's that woe is me mentality. Woe is me. I'm going to, I'm going to do this to myself. You know, uh, it's a little crybaby mentality when you're a kid of wanting to hurt yourself. Uh, but it's a, it's a cry out for help. It's what it is. It truly is. But that was, that's what I did. And, and so I went to prison facing 144 years. I ended up getting uh, around 22 years and then through good time, and um, I ended up serving right almost about two, about two and a half years is what it was. It's what I ended up getting. And when I was released, uh, it was under the table. No media knew about it or anything like that because obviously today in today's society, that was way, what, what do you mean, two and a half years for what you did? 
Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I believe, because uh, I believe it was part of God's plan because 30 days after I got out, when I was in jail, uh, six months before all this happened, um, that's when I accepted the Lord in my life in prison. Um, but it wasn't like a jailhouse Jesus movement. It was real. It was one of those where I didn't really tell anybody, but it was between me and God crying out to him. I said, you take my life, Lord. I've cried out for almost an hour and, and screaming in my pillow of what, what I was, all my sin, everything I ever said, Lord, I've shown you in the world what I can do with this life. Now you take it and show the world what you can do with it. I'm done with this. I'm done with who I am, who I was. I want you in my life. You're my creator. I want you to show the world what you can do with this life. Six months later, um, I was released. One month later, I'm sitting in a living room in Arlington, Virginia, uh, with a youth pastor from a church in Sterling, Virginia. And I'm sitting there, keeping my mouth shut, just watching the other people, because I was about 20, 20, 21 at this time. And this lady walks out of the back room and says, you're the one. And I'm figuring, okay, she knows who I am. She walked up and screamed at me, you are the one. And I, so I got up and left. I figured, okay, she knows who, who I am, what I did. I just got out. She wasn't, I wasn't supposed to get out. So this one of these people ran out behind me. No, no, no. You need to go back and talk to this lady. She, she, she doesn't know about your past, she, but she has something she has to tell you. Brought me back in. The lady looked at me. Her name's Rita Warren. Uh, she was a legislative activist at the United States Capitol. And I did not know that. Christian. Anyway, she had for the past two years, she had been working on permits to have on Easter, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, a real crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the Capitol steps. And she said two years ago, she had a dream of a young man playing the part of Christ. And she said, you were the one in my dream. Wow. And I looked at her and just thinking about that prayer that I didn't tell anybody about, that you show the world what you can do with this life. And this was, uh, I said, I'll do it in one condition. You never tell anyone or give media anyone my name. Because you, you've got the long hair, you've got, you know, the, the clothes and stuff from the Hollywood. She got all the stuff from Hollywood, all the Roman soldier outfits. and everything. So here I am on Good Friday at Lafayette Park in front of the White House. Thousands of people there. Media was there pulling me out of uh, a white van, walking me over with the procession, walk up on this huge stage in front of the White House being tried by Pontius Pilate with all the, you know, the, the reenactment, if you will. And then Pennsylvania Avenue was blocked up to go. I was sentenced to death, quoted my lines, exact, exactly like scripture quotes it, what Christ said to Pontius Pilate. And going down to the Capitol from the White House, uh, fell down many times. Sometimes it was a, an act, other times it was real and had real blood come off my face while I was scraped up, falling on the ground. And I was actually carrying a wood cross, so it was very heavy, but I was strong, you know, so I wasn't worried about that. But this black man, African-American man walked up to me 
and said, no, 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 no. He wasn't even part of the, 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 the reenactment. He just broke through the police and broke through the Roman soldiers and they thought he was gonna hurt me. He leans down and picks up this cross and carries it for me. And it's exactly biblical what happened to Christ. Wow. And the, the leader, the Rita Warren, because the police were going to come in and grab him, you know, do this big takedown thing. And we said, no, 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 leave him alone. Leave him alone. He's helping him. He's helping him. So we got to stop judging people by the color of their skin because God even used uh, people of different color, even to the time he was to, to the time of his death. You know, it was the heart of that man that wanted to help me. Because he saw Christ. He didn't see a high school shooter. He didn't see some reenactment. All he saw was the love of Christ. And this guy was really bleeding, really hurting. And he broke in and did it. So we continued down. He's carrying the cross all the way to the Capitol steps now. And we get up there and they, you know, they fake nail my hands, but they put these ropes and this apparatus that raises me up, way up on the center steps, right there where Barack Obama and, and President Trump separated and the helicopter picked him up. Barack Obama, it was right there at those steps. And they raised me up and there was tens of thousands of people out in the, in the mall area, kind of a Forrest Gump moment, you know, that big mall area out there. And uh, I was supposed to say my lines according to scripture, but I changed the words a little bit. There was no microphone, so nobody could really hear me other than the close area people. And I said, my God, my God, you are my God, you are my king. I'm hanging on the cross right now. You're the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have shown the world what you can do with a high school shooter. And I wept. My tears were real. And people are like, wow, man, that guy's a good actor. You know, I mean, the media's up there. Who's playing the part of Christ? Man, he looks so convincing. And they didn't realize that the The grace I was feeling was real. And I was just overwhelmed by what he was doing. And then they took me down, moved me to this white van under the steps where that, you know, where they hot, where the senators and everybody come in under the steps. And they took off and media was trying to chase and find out who I was because they thought I was this actor from Hollywood. Then Sunday rolled around and here I come in as the resurrected Christ. The, they put lilies out on the, the capital steps in the shape of a huge cross and each lily represented each nation of the world who that we had trade agreements with that we were it was 144 lilies the same amount of years i was facing when i walked into prison again grace personified and so I walked through the Capitol. We started downstairs. I went to church that morning, actually where the president was at the church, Ronald Reagan, over across the way. I was in the back with Rita Warren. Of course, I was not dressed up in any way, shape. I was in there going to church Easter morning. Afterwards, she had already had everything planned. Led, you know, the permits, everything's already taken care of. So they, they take me to this church and I go down to the basement. It's some kind of subway system or something. This takes me under the streets and to the Capitol. We have police escort and all that stuff because they know what's about to happen. We get up to the Capitol and they bring me up and take me into 
She walked me like through to senators' offices and congresspersons' offices, and anyone that was actually there, she introduced me to them as Jesus Christ because I had, you know, the whole white robe. I didn't say a word. I just nodded at them. I never touched them. I just nodded at them. And, and they would look at me like, wow, he's really here. And, and then they took me into the top part of the rotunda where the president looks up and says, we have a guest, you know, when he's doing the, the State of the Union speech. They took me at that, those steps and they stopped whatever they were doing. There wasn't many people there because it was Easter Sunday, but they stopped whatever they were doing. So we have a special guest with us today and pointed up. And there is a man standing as the son of God. I got a standing ovation from leaders of the, the most powerful nation in the world. Looking up, not one of them knew who I was. All they saw was the image of God. But that's how God sees us as, as wants us to be Christ-like, like his son. And I'm just in total awe. And again, I didn't say anything. Then they walked me out to the top of the steps, walked down, tens of thousands of people out there because the cross is already set up. The Roman soldiers have already been placed. And I walk out and... Um, uh, BBC Broadcasting was there, and they had this thing where um, they focused on Easter Sunday, and then they went to the Pope at the Vatican, and over 700 million people, viewers, view, was, views that each Sunday, 700 million people all over the world saw this young man playing the part of Christ walking out on the Capitol steps in Washington, D.C. It could never happen again by the way, because of the laws that are in place now. And I walk down and stand in the middle of the cross and, and I'm like this, just I raise my hands. I never said a word. A, a line as far as you could see, they, had, they wanted to get behind me and everybody take a picture and that sort of thing. People from all over the world that didn't even speak English would walk up and just want to touch the clothes I was wearing, handing me babies, uh, just crying and weeping. and it, was, it took a lot to really comprehend what God was actually doing, but he fulfilled exactly what his intentions were to show the world what he can do with a high school shooter. For four years, Scarlett, this happened for four years from 80, uh, 85 through 89, no, 86 through 89. But anyway, we went to Times Square, did it there. We did it at the Boston Common. Uh, um, of course, Washington, D.C. And finally, uh, when the Republicans were voted out of office, the Democrats put a stop to it and it never happened again. But during that time, no one ever knew who I was. And I left when I when that was over, I moved to uh, Texas. So that's how God used that. And that was my journey. Now, now I'm, I'm kind of on that 30 year run from God, like trying to find my way, you know. And, uh, but during that time, I could always sense his spirit calling me, calling me to, to do more with what he's given me. You know what I mean? And, um, and then in 2011, that, uh, a pastor actually from this church, what's new worship, uh, came to me and said, will you give your testimony? And, and, uh, 
I said, it's not going to happen. You know, I've been running from God for a long time. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And uh, so two years later in 2013, we weren't in this building at the time. We were at a, actually at a travel lodge convention hall. I gave my testimony for the first time. I went into the bathroom, vomited, uh, had called all my friends that, hey, this is what I'm about to do. My, all my clients from my company, this is what I'm about to do. Because I knew once I exposed myself, my life was over. But I finally realized what God said, what Christ said in that scripture, you know, those who keep their life shall lose it, but those who lose their life, my name's sake, so shall find it. That was, I said, Lord, you've given me everything. Everything I have, every blessing I have, I, I am yours. And so I uh, came out, gave my testimony, and one thing led to another and started to, you could see people in the room grabbing their phones to see if it was true. You know, that validation, that vetting moment everybody has. Well, that can't be true. Well, if Google says it's true, it's got to be true, right? Uh, that's not true. <laughs> but that's what they did. And so I, uh, uh, from that moment on, uh, started writing my thoughts on paper and uh, uh, been able to work with the SWAT team, uh, working with the police, spoke at police conventions, met with uh, husbands, wives, retired chiefs. I mean, just it just kind of dominoed from there because they wanted to to hear from the perspective of what were you thinking? It's like dissecting, you know, this. And I thought, you know, it, they deserve that. They, they the, ask your questions because you deserve answers. You need to understand from death to life of where I came. You need to understand where I was. So when I went down to uh, uh, Chantilly and was in a room with like 15 SWAT members, it was like open Q&A. And they just asked me questions that were like detailed, you know, the thought process, the whole, and, you know, when I went to the spiritual, they listened, they listened. And, but there's no other way certain things could have turned out without God, you know, um, it was kind of like the, the demon possessed man when he, when he was transformed and went to the people, you know, they didn't care about him. All they cared about was their livestock being ruined, you know? But uh, the police were very interested because that's they have to deal with these situations to understand the thought process. And they asked me, they said, what would you do if this happened and you were a police officer? Would you take them out or would you? And I looked at them and I said, good guns, stop bad guns. Yes, take them out. Because if it's my granddaughter or my daughter in that school, there's nothing in this world to allow someone in that position. In other words, I was basically telling them, you should have killed me, you know, because I was in that mental state. You should have killed me. But they still asked me that question. And I was honest. I said, I have to be totally honest with you. You have to do it. You have to take them out. Um, the only difference in my situation was because it was a hostage situation. They didn't want to hurt the, the other so they asked about positioning and all, all these other uh, logistics uh, in the process. 
And see, in my situation, nothing was premeditated as far as positioning or locations or what rooms or it was all rage. You see, there's no thought for a human thought process. It's just hurt, 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 hurt other people. And I think that's probably why God was so focused on me because he knew, you know, I wasn't this substance of true uh, embedded evil upon others like you know someone that goes out and is like a serial killer kind of mentality it's still evil but i'm just saying god saw something in me to save me through this process i feel that anyway so anyway here i am today telling my story wrote my book uh didn't intend to write a book uh but it ended up that way um i may make myself available to anybody that's willing to listen uh especially troubled kids. I, I get letters from people who have troubled uh, people in, in their organization or their school or whatever. I work with Teen Challenge. Uh, when I do my concerts now, I bring in Teen Challenge to do all the backstage stuff. Uh, we have about 70 to 100 volunteers that come in. I work with state police, county police. It's kind of ironic. I actually had concerts in high schools now. Where I'm in everything we do, we give the money away. And people are like, well, explain what you mean give money away. Well, what it means is after you pay for all the expenses, we take whatever's left, it could be 2,000 or 25,000, and we give it to a little girl that's got neuroblastoma cancer in Waynesboro, Virginia, mm. uh, named Reagan Batten. Okay, mm. we, that was my first concert, and it helped her with her medical bills. Mm. Uh, we helped Teen Challenge. They got $25,000 with the Matthew West concert that we did. Uh, I work with some of the biggest uh, uh, contractors that help sponsor these events, uh, investors and whatnot. It, it's just a way for me to, to, to experience how I can facilitate a situation to allow children to give all of their pain over to God right before two, you know, 2,000 people. And now I know, because I always ask myself for 30 plus years, why'd you let me live? Why'd you let me live? Why'd you let me live? One, and I mean more expressive than that. Like, why? Why me, Lord? Why did you let me live? You know, I'm, I'll never forget it. I was doing a Big Daddy Weave concert. Mike Weaver was giving invitation. And I asked him to. I said, Mike, will you do invitation? He said, absolutely. He loves doing invitation. Great man of God. And when he gave that invitation, I saw the children and parents come forward to give their hearts to Christ. Something spoke to me, and I believe it was, I believe it was the Lord. And I heard these three words, this is why. Mm. Mm. That's the last time I've ever heard God's voice. This is why. Whew. Wow. That's it wasn't amazing. about TJ. It was about those kids who were lost. But see, God, these kids didn't even know who I was. The parents, the, the concert, Big Daddy Weave, they had no clue who I was because my story hadn't come out yet. He knew, just like he knew when I hung on the cross at the Capitol steps. The whole world saw a reenactment of the Son of God hanging in Washington, D.C. Oh, it's wonderful. It's Washington, D.C. It's we're bringing God back in our country and that sort of thing. 
But God is using the lowliest of love, the biggest loser of all in the world to do it, just as he did with the disciples. He found the worst of the worst, the sinners, to bring his message to the world. So I'm just in awe that God would allow me to, because I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to speak. I'm not qualified to to write a book. I'm not qualified to do anything, but God qualifies the unqualified. And I just made myself available. That's all I did. Made myself, if more of us make ourselves available, you will see lives change around you. And if more of us give our stories, everyone has a story. That story you think is no good and doesn't mean anything to nobody can change a life around you. There's a little girl, a little boy somewhere that's going through pain and agony and you've already experienced and you're hiding that light because of your pride, reputation. Well, we shall overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimonies. I, I feel like I have. I mean, scripture is alive to me. It's breathing. It's come to full fruition. It's the real uh, substance of who I am. And I'm sure for you, it's probably the same thing that scripture has probably become something totally different than it was say 15 years ago. It's probably something more tangible of hope and direction. And, you know, that constant love letter from God to you that he wanted to give us. And I'm, I'm just uh, grateful to be used. So if there's anything that I can do for you, your organization, uh, or it doesn't even have to be in a, a huge capacity, just any kind of capacity that you would need, I would make myself available to do that uh, for you. From Thank the you. love of God within me to you. Thank you. I, I do feel the same way. I feel I wake up every morning so grateful to be able to serve and to be able to use my story to help other people. It's uh, a tremendous source of healing and strength for me every time that I do that. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the listening to the Choose Love podcast. Our positive, empowering messaging is reaching millions of people all over the planet. Join the worldwide movement to choose love. Our programming is in over 10,000 schools, homes, and communities across the country, in every state, and over 112 countries and counting. We're giving individuals of all ages the essential life skills they need to flourish. You can be part of the solution, too. We have sponsorship opportunities available that help support us and enable you to share in helping create a safer, more peaceful, and loving world. Contact me on our website, chooselovemovement.org.